Imagine, please, that you have a friend, a friend that you've been, over a number of years, chatting to uh, about the Lord Jesus. You've shared your life, you've invested time and energy, you've prayed for them, you've answered questions, you've taken opportunities when they've come, you've, you've loved them through, through good times and bad times, you've, you've sought to show them Christ, to speak of Christ, everyday, normal nitty-gritty witnessing. And it's come to a crunch point. It's an exciting time because, because they say they get it, that they believe the, f- the facts, that they, they can assent to them intellectually. They understand who, who Jesus is. And yet they're still reluctant to commit to him. They doubt whether they can really trust him with their life. They say, well, what does he know about my exams? Or about my future? What does he know about my parents arguing? What does he know about that broken relationship or, or the hassle that I'm going through at work or, or my boss who bullies me or the deadline on Tuesday? What does he know about my illness, my pain and frustration, the false starts, the, the weakness that I feel or about my singleness or the uncertainty of life and jobs or the fact that secretly I dread Christmas because... My family will be there and they always end up drunk or arguing. And you're telling me to trust this carpenter from Nazareth who died on a cross and who seemed to rise again and you say that he's ascended and he rules, but what does he know about my life? Why should I put my life in his hands? What can he do? He seems so far off. What good will it be to give my life to him? What do you say? Why should they trust Jesus? Why should they give their all to Jesus? Maybe that's your question here this morning. Maybe that is you. That's your situation. And you see, I think John chapter 1 that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks gives us a very good answer as to why we can trust him. John, who was an eyewitness of Jesus, he wants us to join the dots. He wants us to see who Jesus is, to see why we can put our life in his hands, why we must listen to what he says. He, he wants us to join the dots from eternity past, as far back as we can imagine, and even more. And then to a man walking around on the earth, breathing and talking and teaching and laughing and eating, And the claims that we find in John 1, do just note, would sound frankly outrageous to first century Jewish ears. We we must not think that they were just a bit gullible and a bit naive. They sort of believed that sort of stuff back then. Imagine you were a first century Jewish lad and you were having John chapter 1 read to you. And at the start you would be nodding. Of course that's right, God's word was with him at the start of it all. That's correct. That's how he makes things. That's how he speaks to people. That's how he, he reveals himself to people. And John says that the start of it all was the word. So we can nod along to that, or, or at least some of it, because then it goes a bit funny in verse 2, and it, doubts start to creep in. It, it sounds like the way that God speaks and makes and relates is a person. And it gets a bit confusing. He was with God in the beginning. And then our eyes scan ahead. Verse 6 to 8, we're thinking, oh no, not John. That's not John the Baptist. That loony in the papers who was in the desert, wasn't he mixed up with that Jesus bloke? 
What's he got to do with stuff? And then our eyes scan further down, our, our heart is racing, and we get to it in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we catch our breath. I can't believe it. He is talking about Jesus. This, this word from the beginning is Jesus. The eternal word made flesh. They might sound like outlandish ideas in our culture, but even more so then in a monotheistic Jewish culture. So we're going to look at five things from these first four verses. I mean, if you're the kind of person who likes to scribble down notes or whatever, then please do, and do come and grab me afterwards. I'd love to chat to you over coffee about this, so do come and talk to me. Um, But the first one, Jesus was there at the beginning. In the beginning was the word, 1 verse 1. His opening gambit is an echo to the very start of the Bible, the, the beginning of Genesis. And we expect him to say, in the beginning, God. But he doesn't. He says, in the beginning was the word. John is saying, before you, and before me, and before New Testament times, and before the exile, before the division of the kingdom under Solomon, before David, before Joshua, before Moses, before Abraham, before Adam, before the world, before the universe, before anything was made, Jesus was there. In the beginning was the word. The word that God used to make and to create, he has a face. And it's a fascinating introduction to the gospel, actually. John is very skillfully talking to us, to different kinds of people. He's doing it in a way that the Jews would understand. They would perhaps pick up his book about Jesus, and he is speaking their language, speaking in a way that they can understand with concepts that they can grasp. They understand what it means to to be the word of God, and yet he turns their ideas upside down. It wasn't just Jews around, though, when John wrote. There were Gentiles, too. There were Greek Stoic thinkers. And John is speaking to them as well. So if you were to pick up uh, Greek philosophy for dummies, you would read at the very beginning that at the heart of the universe, there is an idea. The world, as we look at it, is not muddled. It is not chaotic. There is order. And the Greeks said that was because of logos an impersonal principle or or concept of order. There is reason at work in the world. It seems to me that's not an outdated idea. If you speak to particularly scientists, there's a a growing following for that kind of thought, something impersonal, something that stops the world from being chaotic. Listen to um, a professor of national philosophy called uh, Paul Davies. He's a Brit. He's based in Australia. It's quite a long quote, but I think it's helpful. Let me read it to you. He says this, The difficulty for a scientist who is an out-and-out atheist is that the essence of the scientific method is to seek reasons for why things are as they are in the world. He says, Science asserts that the world is not arbitrary or absurd. So he continues, Scientists expect the world to be thoroughly logical and rational at every step. But when you go down to the fundamental laws and ask, Why those laws? Where did those laws come from? The standard atheistic response is to suddenly do a backflip and say, oh, well, they just exist reasonlessly. There's no reason for those laws being as they are, indeed, for why they exist at all. And he says the physical universe is ultimately, um, he says, they say the physical universe is ultimately arbitrary and absurd, but I don't think the universe is arbitrary and absurd. 
I think it has something like meaning or purpose underpinning it. He says at the heart of the universe is meaning, is purpose, is reason. In essence, he's, he's with the Greeks on this one. And John says, well, to you Jews who believe in the word, God's voice has a name. To, to you Greeks who believe in logos at the heart of the universe, he's not impersonal. He has a face. The story of Christmas doesn't begin with a mucky manger and a baby and cooing shepherds and magi bearing gifts. It starts at the very beginning with the word. And the word was with God. And the with God words there are more than just where he was present, more than just he existed, more than just Jesus was there at the same time, but they imply relationship. They imply more than just being present there. So commentators say, as you read through the Gospels and you see similar Greek words, it's always about relationships. So Mark 14, every day, I was with you. Mark 6, aren't his sisters here with us? You see, at the heart of God, he is saying, there is community. There is relationship. At the very beginning, God was in relationship with the word. We've already seen this morning that, that as you read through the Old Testament, you can find these kind of glimpses, like, like in Job, of there being something going on about relationship at the start. Let me read to you as well from Proverbs 8. Very interesting parallels to these verses. The, the Proverbs writer there, I take it Solomon, writes of wisdom personified again. To stretch our understanding towards God not being alone at the start. So he writes this in Proverbs 8. I, wisdom, was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he, finished, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. As if God's great creative work is carried out through this creative agent of wisdom. And we think, what? What sort of a person was in a loving relationship, creating with God from the beginning, filled with delight day after day, rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in his world, delighting in mankind? Who would be there from the very start of it all? They would almost have to be divine, And John says, brilliant, you've got it. That is it. Jesus is God. The the sort of person who is in a loving relationship with God from the beginning is in fact the sort of person who is God. Not only was the word with God, the word was God. Fully God. And yet here's the thing. Church history is littered with a steady stream of people who don't like that. They try and twist and they stretch. They're happy to say he is a God, but not happy that he is the God. It was Dan Brown, not our Dan Brown, another Dan Brown, who picked up and embellished this in his overly popular Da Vinci Code. And so his story goes that in AD 325, the church council in Nicaea, they voted that Jesus was in fact 
God. It was a big secret covered up by the nasty, established, overly authoritarian church. And then they decided that Jesus was God. Now, the Council of Nicaea did clarify, but it's only because there were dangerous heretics around twisting things and stretching things. And so from those heretics like Arius in the 4th century, right the way through to Jehovah's Witnesses today, there have been those who doubt that Jesus was the God. And lots of it comes down to places like 1 verse 1. So this is the science bit. Have a look at your Bibles, 1 verse 1. In Greek, you could legitimately translate it, the word was a God, not the God. And so when the JW turns up on your doorstep and says that to you, then what is your response? Well, if they're willing to listen, here are four brief things that might help. The first is read it in context. Read the rest of John's Gospel. Read the fact that Jesus says he will give life to people. He will judge people in John chapter 5. Read of him not rebuking Thomas in chapter 20, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. John, the Gospel writer, doesn't say, everyone got a bit overexcited and a bit emotional and Thomas overstepped the line. Now, Jesus accepts his worship. He accepts his worship as God because that is who he is. So John clarifies elsewhere what he means here. So read the rest of John. The second one, if John meant that Jesus was divine, but not the God, big G, there was a perfectly good other word he could use. But he chooses not to. He uses this word deliberately here. The word that he uses means God big G, not God little g. Thirdly, and slightly complicatedly, um, and you can switch off if you don't do Greek, but in the Greek, um, you don't need to have a definite article if you've got two nouns together. Okay, So it doesn't need to say the word was the God in Greek. They will use a single definite article, a single the, with two Greek words, two nouns together. Elsewhere, you'll find that in John's Gospel. That's just the way they do things. They don't repeat the the twice. And the fourth one is that he's deliberately doing it like this. This is the point that he is trying to make. He wants us to see both the the identity of Jesus as God, but also with God. He's showing us he is both God, big G, but also separate from him. And if I've lost you, then come and grab me afterwards. But there are good things that we can say when people come and challenge us on those things. John has written it deliberately like that, and he is making a point. John is on the front foot as he begins his gospel. He he starts off his account of Jesus' life deliberately with a focus. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus is never really painted as God in the Bible, is he? And yet I think John, the gospel writer, would disagree with that. We're told his identity, Jesus, is God, and we see it too from what he did, from the way that he lived. He made everything. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you see God's word being so powerful, and he says, let X happen and it did, or let Y happen and it did, and it was good and it was so, John tells us this this powerful word has a name. So what is it for you that takes your breath away, that makes you gasp, maybe... Maybe the astounding sunset at the end of a clear summer day. 
the endless beach on holiday with the turquoise sea lapping up against the golden sands, the panoramic view from the top of the mountain, the rich colours of autumn, the browns and the yellows and the pinks and the oranges, crisp winter's day with warm breath coming from our mouths, we're tromping across the snow-covered fields. Jesus made them. There's nothing that has been made that wasn't made by Jesus, by the Word. And so where Christians can, I think, legitimately differ on what's going on in Genesis 1, the how God made the world question, the dynamics of what's going on, is it a literal six days or literal 24-hour days, or, or what is happening there? We can't differ on the fact that Jesus made it all. Through the words, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so it seems to me that that has severe implications on how we treat the world, our relationship with the world around us. In my experience, Christians can get this wrong very easily. Somewhere we've gained the reputation for being a bit anti-stuff. People think we like the sort of spiritual and holy type stuff and choirs and angels and that sort of thing, but we're, we're anti-physical. We're anti-food, anti-fun, anti-music, anti-sex, anti-dancing, anti-sport, and especially anti-them on a Sunday. And yet Jesus made them. They're not here by accident. They're not the product of a of an evolutionary fluke or some sort of uh, hopeless, meaningless universe. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And there's a right context for them, that there's a correct place to enjoy them because he made them and he knows how to use them. He knows what they're for. He knows how to make the most of these things to not be hurt by them. But Jesus made them. It's like fire. Fire in the right place, like, like a Christmas candle. It, it looks pretty. It's nice. It helps you to see your, your, your carol service. It gives you light. But fire in the wrong place is not good. Fire on the carpet is not good. Fire on my hand is not good. Jesus made the world. He knows how to use it. He knows what it's for. And so we say, what about cancer? What about tsunamis or floods or famine? Or what about death? Did Jesus make them? What's gone wrong? Of course, the Bible doesn't end in Genesis chapter 1. Just two chapters later, we see Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, shaking their fists at God and saying, we want to go our own way. We want to live without you, and so the world that we live in is out of kilter, and it's under judgment. It's not as it was meant to be. We're all aware of the fruit of that all the time. It's what happens when people decide to live out of relationship with the God that they were made for. If, if I want to be in charge, and if you want to be in charge, then what happens when we meet and if we disagree? It's war, war of words and wills, war between countries, that the good world that he made has turned dark. And so it's into this darkness 
that the world, that the light comes. We may have walked out on God, but he's not walked out on us. And so finally, Jesus has life in himself and brings light to the world. You see, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse 4. He has life in himself as God. He is able to make and to create and to give life. Jesus doesn't just come and tell us what we need to do. He comes to restore us. He comes to give us life again. Life, life in enjoying and knowing the God who made you. And this life is light. Some say a a light for revelation. God speaking to us and telling us what we need to do to be rescued. Some say it's a a light as in an ethical dimension. It's righteousness and goodness. and, And yet this light comes into the world, into darkness. And you know the way to get rid of darkness? You don't fill up buckets with it and throw it down the drain. You don't get the dustpan and brush out and put it in the the bin. You, You turn on the light. And here is Jesus, the light of the world. Which it seems to me makes Christmas incredibly relevant. There's been lots of discussion recently with particularly Anglican brothers and sisters. What does it mean to be relevant? I think in a sense we don't need to try and be relevant because the message that we have is so utterly relevant. Because we're in a dark world and we have the message of light. Now, we want to speak in a way people understand. We don't want to create barriers. But Jesus is relevant. Light in a dark world is utterly relevant. So consider and pray and bring colleagues and neighbours and family and friends to the various events that we've got going on. Invite them this Christmas because they need to hear this. They will know the world is dark. They need to hear about light. So what do we say to our friend at the start? As they ask you, can I trust Jesus? Maybe that's you. Maybe that is your question in in life. We say, well, I hear what you're saying, God. I can see that I should live like that or believe that kind of thing or do that sort of stuff, but I'm just tempted to do things my way. It'd be much easier, much more straightforward if I can go with my plan of action and then we'll talk about it later, God, okay? Can we trust him? Can we trust Jesus? What do we say? I take it we trust people in life because of who they are. So you know when you're poorly and you go to the doctors and you're in the waiting room and and somebody comes and calls you through and you sit down and they think I'm in the wrong room, they look 14. But they're not, they're a doctor. And you say, I'm sorry, I was looking for the doctor and it turns out they are the doctor. And it turns out they're very good, they're the best in their field. They are exactly who you need to talk to. Just the voice you need to listen to. You see, we can listen to Jesus. We can trust him. 
I mean, he's not just like the other religious teachers who come and give us his take on things, his say on, well, this is what I think the world is about, and this is what God is like, and here is what reality is. No, 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 he, he is God. He is the Word. He is the Word who was with God. He's come from outside the system. He's a voice we can listen to. If you want to go to the very best person to trust in life for how you should live, well, go to the one who made it. As we come up against the struggles and temptations and frustrations of life, as we're bruised, living in the battle in a dark world, as we're tempted to listen to different voices, remember who's speaking. Remember who Jesus is. This is the God who made everything. We can trust him with it all.